Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Today, we'll be discussing uh, the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on critical care resources and providers. And we're very fortunate to have two outstanding guests with us, uh, Drs. Walster and Dr. Vranis. We'll first be discussing Dr. Walster's article, uh, The COVID-19 Pandemic's Impact on Critical Care Resources and Providers, a Global Survey and the accompanying editorial by Dr. Franis uh, entitled Looking to the Past, Learning from the Present, and Preparing for the Future Towards Understanding Critical Care Strain During a Global Pandemic. So to Sarah and to Kelly, thank you both for joining us. I'm going to ask you each to to introduce yourselves. Uh, Sarah first. Absolutely, and thanks for inviting me. I'm Sarah Walster, and I'm a a neurointensivist at uh, Harborview Medical Center and the University of Washington. Thanks for joining us, Sarah and Kelly. Yeah, thank you again for hosting us as well. Um, I'm a, a Kelly Brannis, and I'm an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, and I'm also a staff physician and a critical care health researcher at the Portland VA. Great. Uh, an absolute uh, privilege to have both of you uh, on the podcast with us. So we're going to be discussing the impact of COVID-19 on critical care resources, and uh, Kelly, you set the stage in your editorial really well um, in terms of, uh, you know, the impact of H1N1 in 1918 and a 2007 perspective piece by Drs. Fauci. Maybe you could just, for our audience, uh, uh, um, explain uh, the uh, backdrop uh, before we dive into COVID-19. Yeah, um, I'd be happy to. So, I think it's really interesting when we look backwards, you know, the last time the world has faced any similar situation to what we're currently facing was in the influenza pandemic of 1918. And um, when I've been reflecting on what we're experiencing as a world and as a critical care community, I had done a a bit of a background search and I found this really interesting perspective piece that Drs. Morris and Fauci wrote around 2007 in the Journal of Infectious Diseases. And they they reviewed a lot of the unknowns so think factors, kind of epidemiologic questions that were still not answered even to this day uh, about the 1918 influenza pandemic. But one of the most important parts of that perspective piece, I thought, was that they said, you know, should we as a world community face a similar pandemic in today's modern age and, and with all the advancements that we've made in healthcare, really what would be the greatest strain would be actual resource availability, including, um, you know, beds, medical equipment, and healthcare workers with expertise in caring for critically ill patients. They predicted that that would be the greatest source of strain on our system should we face another pandemic. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting and timely, and the study that Dr. Walster performed with her colleagues really uh, demonstrated those words were true. And that was pretty interesting for me because you made mention of the fact that uh, our just-in-time culture and nature may, while a great advance uh, in you know the 20th century and 21st century, was actually an impediment to delivery of services. Maybe you could explain that. Yeah, exactly. I think 
um, we are really good, especially in the United States, at uh, reacting to crises in, in the short term. Um, but we rely on um, really the global supply chain that has been created over the last 20, 30 years, for example, of masks um, that are largely produced um, over overseas and not in the United States, for example, made it actually really difficult for us in a short amount of time to have access to the necessary supplies that we need. So, for example, you know, when the whole world needs the same thing and, uh, you know, the supply chain is disrupted, transport systems that are usually in place are all on pause, we can't get what we need, something as simple as a face mask to care for the large number of patients who suddenly need it. So it's, it's really sort of the, the after effect of, of such modernization that's happened that in many ways has been really good for our global community. But when it comes to the case of a pandemic, it really reveals vulnerabilities in our ability to swiftly and kind of nimbly react with the supplies and the equipment and the resources that we needed to respond effectively. Yeah. Um, and then turning to you, Sarah, um, we all saw on TV, you know, uh, or it was described over the radio about how um, physicians were making, uh, having to make really uh, serious decisions about who to put on a ventilator, um, the risk posed to, uh, you know, staffing in the ICU, nurses, the respiratory therapists, the physicians, and then the fact that, you know, family members weren't seeing their families. With that in mind, you know, what was the rationale for you performing your study and uh, what were your aims? It was actually very much born out of uh, our own experiences, and I would say my shared experience with colleagues and many of the co-authors on my paper. But um, the idea to do this project happened in uh, April, which was a, play a time when many places were uh, just after their first surge, uh, in the middle of their first surge. And it was actually a conversation I had with one of my co-authors, Ari Lewis, uh, who's in New York, who is, you know, one of the most productive human beings that I know. But, you know, after a night on call, um, it's a very, you know, we're kind of uh, communicating, and we had both done surveys and international work um, and had worked together, uh, and we were just talking about our experiences. Um, and I was also speaking to some of my colleagues in Europe, uh, in Italy, in Germany. Uh, I'm originally from Germany, and so um, it kind of this project came up uh, based on conversations with people who were just, um, and providers, and seeing that there are some, difference, some differences in what we're experiencing, but there are a lot of things across the world that are uniting us. Uh, even though the healthcare systems are slightly different or the situation we're in are slightly different. Uh, I think uh, colleagues from New York and Boston, so Dave Greer is another collaborator on the study and was one of my mentors in Boston. And I think uh, at the time, the East Coast was extremely hardly hit. Um, and, you know, just speaking about what we're experiencing, uh, we thought it would be good to acquire this data and would be mostly important uh, in preparation for what's to come. Um, the emotional distress component, the burnout component, especially was something we early on worried about. Um, and we were thinking it would be good to get more data up on to really bring attention to this uh, important topic. Uh, and then in terms of the critical care resource utilization, and, you know, a lot of ICUs had to restructure everything, the entire workflow, a lot of hospitals had to. But we kind of just wanted to elicit what the most important problems are um, across the world. Uh, and what regional differences might be, uh, but mostly to uh, be able to do something meaningful with it um, as we continue to go through this pandemic or, or future pandemics. So in the conversations you had with some of your colleagues from New York or um, overseas, you know, what were they mentioning as being similar versus uh, different before you started the study? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of conversations with colleagues from New York, uh, Italy, and actually Iran specifically were um, conversations about having to choose uh, between patients and having to ration resources and decide who gets certain resources and who doesn't, which is a, you know, it's a subject that's very ethically challenging and very interesting to me and, you know, something that's very tough. I've done some global health work in the past um, where I've worked in resource-limited scenarios and I've always found it heartbreaking and really tough as a physician, you know, who's supposed to stand up for everyone to decide how to choose and who to choose. And uh, in Seattle at the time, we were fortunately not in a position, whereas we were very busy, we were never in a position where we were out of resources to the point that we had to make those decisions. Uh, but certainly some of the conversations that prompted and inspired me to want to do this project were conversations about um, not being able to provide care, the ideal care to patients and having to ration resources in a way and, and seeing how tough that is on providers. And in a way, the two, um, and, you know, when we kind of, you know, went through the project and, you know, came up with the main question, we kind of divided into critical care resources and providers and the effect on the ICUs and the people. And in a way, they were, you know, we had two separate outcomes. So we had three main outcomes, two about providers, um, one about providers and two about the resources. But in a way, what was fascinating to us was also the connection between that, um, because I think it is a huge thing off the, on the providers to um, uh, have to deal with this resource utilization and make these decisions and, you know, also lose control or feel like they have to make decisions that are very, you know, challenging. Yeah, they definitely were unsettling times in uh, March. So maybe you could go through briefly what your methods were um, and how you sought mm -hmm. to address your research question. Yeah, definitely. And our methods were, and it was a little challenging, a little unconventional, because as you know, um, there's so much dynamic happening in the COVID pandemic and everything's very fast-paced. And I think a lot of researchers in COVID were experiencing that, where, you know, you're working hard, you're trying to do things fast to accomplish things. And then the dynamics are also changing. So we tried to do a very rapid turnaround survey. We kind of went a little outside of the box with a distribution mechanism. And it's outlined in the paper where we basically tried to reach the target audience of providers, of all multidisciplinary providers who provide care to COVID patients in the ICU. Um, and to do that, we collaborated with um, various international critical care societies. Um, and that was one of the most gratifying and you know, fun is maybe a wrong word in the sense of the pandemic, but I really enjoyed working with physicians all over the world and the societies and, you know, and they were so interested in collaborating. And um, yeah, so that was our main distribution mechanism that we went over critical care societies and we looked at some social media networks because the goal was to, in a quick time, reach a very wide net of critical care providers. Uh, we did try to vet it carefully and only went to websites that were A, highly relevant and B, verified credentials because there's always that danger of losing quality of your data. Um, but there was definitely, you know, we didn't have the clearest target sample, um, which was a limit limitation, but we did select, uh, you know, based on membership of critical care societies through these websites. We did go through some research networks uh, that we knew through colleagues, uh, such as uh, PEDAL, or we went through Global Sepsis Alliance. One of the collaborators on the project um, had a connection there, and um, we uh, reached out and uh, again, it was through various mechanisms. We tried to do in a short time frame and also asked about where places stood in terms of peak to the pandemic. Um, and, you know, we also tried to pull some objective data, see, you know, how the caseloads and mortalities were uh, at the time in the places that people came from, that respondents came from. Uh, but, yeah, we basically tried to cast a very wide global net 
um, and uh, uh, of intensive care providers. Gotcha. So let's dive into your findings. Um, so, Sarah, what were your main findings, and what are the implications of these findings? Yeah. Um, so we uh, have responses from two, uh, 2,700 respondents from 77 countries. Um, most were nurses or physicians and some respiratory therapists and advanced practice providers. And um, uh, mostly um, there was a, uh, almost a third of respondents noted a lack of ICU nurses, um, and the lack of ICU nurses was felt more than that of uh, intensivists. And, um, and uh, emotional distress and burnout were pretty high, about 52%. Uh, it's hard to compare to the pre-COVID literature because it's obviously different populations and different circumstances, but it was somewhat higher than most uh, other literature reporting burnout and IC providers. Uh, the burnout was the highest in North America. And it was interesting when we looked at regional differences uh, because the perceived lack of resources was actually the lowest in North America. Uh, for example, limiting mechanical ventilation or having to withhold ventilators uh, was the lowest in North America compared to other regions. Um, and um, yeah, emotional distress was the highest in North America. Um, other predictors in a multivariate model of emotional distress were female gender, uh, being a nurse, um, a lack, uh, a perceived lack of ICU nurses, uh, as well as of peppers, uh, and experiencing poor communication from supervisors. Um, I would actually like to reference another study that is from the same survey because um, one of my co-authors, Manisha Sharma, uh, zoned in on the U.S. data and really looking and, you know, the majority of our respondents were from the U.S. It was almost 60% of our respondents were from the U.S. And um, there was also very strong, uh, there, were, uh, there was a very strong association between insufficient access to PPE in general. Um, and she kind of looked at some data components that we hadn't for the original paper that was published in CHESS, but she kind of looked at the connection between PPE and access to PPE and lack of certain types of PPE. Um, and that was the strongest predictor in that survey. Um, uh, feeling that the hospital is unable to provide uh, keep providers safe, the strongest predictor of burnout, and the strongest predictor of, you know, um, being worried about your own or your family's health. And then just briefly so to jump... Uh, to, oh, sorry. Um, uh, no, please go ahead. Yeah, just uh, to briefly just comment on the resource part. Um, there were many very interesting lack of resources identified. Uh, limiting mechanical ventilation uh, was not tied to any lack of resources rather than just ventilator availability, which was expected. And there were many, more about two-thirds of respondents uh, reported that they were changing their CPR practices. Um, again, the North America stood out a little in that um, North America still maintains the most um, family-oriented culture. You know, we asked a lot of questions about who makes decisions about CPR, ventilation, code status, um, how much do we involve families in critical decisions, and from the survey, but also my conversations with providers in these countries in the different critical care societies, it seems like one way to ration resources is that physicians became more paternalistic. And I think the U.S. being on the spectrum of less paternalistic and having more family-centered decision-making uh, was the country, but North America, meaning U.S. and Canada, but most, most prominently the U.S. remained the country that would still um, maintain that family-centered decision-making, whereas many places became more physician-centered and where the doctors really made the decision to not offer CPR or just continue ventilators. 
So Sarah, I definitely want to come back to the discussion about uh, paternalism versus patient autonomy. But first, I want to get Kelly to jump in and to tell us what uh, struck her about the findings. Um, and then we'll come back to that discussion. Kelly? Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of this Dr. Waltram touched on, but a couple things that really stood out to me. First was um, this issue of PPE shortages. So I was not surprised at all based on my own clinical and research experience that ICU nurses seem to be the the, the human resource that was uh, most lacking. Um, and then the PPE shortages, which was particularly striking to me first because I, I did note in the paper the mention that that was the strongest predictor of all provider concerns in the United States. And um, I'm really interested in this idea because it's potentially modifiable, right? Like you can, there are things we can do during the current pandemic and moving forward to try to improve and maintain access to adequate PPA. And that seems to have such a strong implication for healthcare providers feeling safe, you know, instilling trust in their institution, and also um, helping them have confidence that they're not going to bring this home to their family. So I think that was a really important and key finding. Um, another one, again, touched on by Dr. Wallstrom, but I thought it was really interesting that you know, about, I think, one-third of participants did report placing limits on administering mechanical ventilation, and nearly two-thirds reported changes to policies or practices uh, for CPR, but this was really most common in locations outside North America and specifically the U.S., and that's despite the United States having, you know, pretty much by far and away the largest number of COVID-19 cases even at the time that the study was done. Um, and so I think several reasons explain that. You know, first, we know that the United States has more ICU beds per capita than most other similar countries. So it makes sense that we're not going to run out of things like ICU beds or ventilators as quickly. But I think it also really speaks to the culture, what we were just getting at, of patients really being treated as consumers of healthcare in the United States. And that's, again, reinforced by the finding that Dr. Wallstrom just described about how in the United States, or in North America, but, you know, most of the respondents in the North American cohort were from the United States in, in the study. That um, was really the only region in which respondents were more likely to make decisions based on family or surrogate wishes. And that, you know, that it reflects my own experience. And again, that really um, shows nicely how the United States healthcare system is kind of unique in its culture and how we really do emphasize um, patient autonomy over paternalism. So I want to jump into this discussion on paternalism and patient autonomy. So um, it appears, uh, um, Sarah, that, you know, outside the United States, there was a whole lot less burnout than here in the United States, even though you, the United States had a lot more resources. What did you put that down to? Um, uh, uh, I mean, it was definitely related to the PPE, um, but could it be that, you know, the United States finished positions aren't used to having these kind of discussions about, you know, taking care away and having to make those decisions? What are your thoughts on that? It might be. It was interesting that North America, and as Kelly said, most of the respondents were from the United States. And I think that, you know, our experience reflects that the United States is different and navigating resources and these critical, uh, important decisions. Um, yeah, I wonder whether it was that. Um, I've had a lot of experience working in more developing countries in lower resources settings. And it was interesting to me when I worked on the wards, uh, seeing that providers had to be much more, you know, not just about withholding care or family discussions. Providers just suddenly had to be much more selective in which tests they ordered, 
um, which workup we performed, whether we're going to have a patient travel to CAT scan or have the EG tech in come in two or three times to do this. And um, in a way, I think we all grew as clinicians uh, in my practical experience, uh, you know, having to ask ourselves that and becoming more selective about which studies to order that would truly change management, you know, thinking about the yield of a study before we uh, have the luxury of just getting it. Um, I, I wonder whether um, that is true. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of, you know, a lot more adjustment um, compared to other settings where physicians were already used to being very paternalistic and making these decisions, but where physicians have already been more faced with lack of resources. Um, but even between the United States and Europe, there were some differences. I mean, uh, and uh, frankly, unfortunate, and unfortunately, a response from resource-limited settings and low-income countries are actually pretty low, um, but yeah, even between Europe, which, uh, you know, is a very high income setting and a very, you know, resource capable place, um, there were still some differences. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's a little hard to say. And it's, um, the emotional distress and burnout component is also such a complex topic. I think there's a lot of other literature that shows that higher income economies are at much higher risk for distress and burnout. And is that, yeah, I, I find it very hard to speak about because it's such a nuanced topic and there's so many things contributing to it. And is it, are we not assessing it in the right way? Uh, are there cultural barriers um, in other countries? Or is it that um, we have the luxury to get distressed and burned out and in other places there are just other problems um, that are much more fundamental? Um, and it's it's a very interesting question. Um, I would say it's a little difficult to answer given its complexity. Um, and I think is a worldwide phenomenon uh, apart from the pandem pandemic. I think that burnout is a very real issue, um, and is either mostly reported or most more so seen in uh, resource in, in countries that have resources and are economically actually doing well. I agree with you. It's a, definitely a very complex issue, and uh, hopefully um, yeah. further research will be able to address it. Um, Kelly, uh, you mentioned the importance of PP and the fact that it's a modifiable effect, and uh, it struck a lot of us as clinicians and, and those working as nurses or uh, in the ICU about how there was a general lack of PPE, even though there was ability for the government to motivate and get more PPE done through the Defense Production Act. Um, what effect do you think that had on the clinicians? Um, and uh, and in, um, in contrast, uh, the fact that the vaccine is now available, uh, my, my clinical experience is that a lot of people were, you know, feeling that it was a very dark uh, December coming, and then towards the end, we started getting the vaccine, and a lot of people started feeling like, you know, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel now. Uh, what are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that? Yeah, um, I, let's see, um, I completely agree. I guess from the vaccine standpoint, I think that my experience um, has been one of just elation and joy when I've gone to the, like, I've now just got my second vaccine and going and being in person and seeing my colleagues, um, there's just elation is like really how I can describe it. And I think it's because it does provide a light at the end of the tunnel and it also makes us breathe just a little bit easier about us, you know, ourselves getting sick and um, bringing it home to our families. Hopefully, hopefully it will reduce transmissibility um, as well. Um, with the, the, the PPE issue as being modifiable. Yeah. I think that um, 
it's interesting. I, I think there's just been a general sense of, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. My experience, and I think the experience of a lot of healthcare providers has been the PPE recommendations that we've heard from our employers and hospitals has really changed over time. And part of that is because we didn't know a lot at the beginning, and that's you know unavoidable and understandable. But I have heard from discussions with colleagues that there's kind of an impression that the, the recommendations also changed based on availability and of equipment rather than based on public health guidelines. And that, I think, is very stressful and instills kind of a, a sense of distrust um, that, you know, your employer, your hospital, like, do, do they know, do they have your best interest at heart, or are they just sort of saying, you know, we're going to reuse this, or we don't recommend N95s unless it's an aerosolizing procedure, and if you want to wear an N95, too bad, like, you know, we're keeping those under lock and key. You know, I don't know what the right answer is, but I do think that there's a lot of distress that happens when you feel like um, you are not being, you don't have the ability to, to keep yourself as safe as you would like, and that's based on availability or other constraints rather than just tr- true science, if that makes sense. Um, oh, definitely. I, I yeah. think it does. Uh, and yeah. as you said, if, if it had been like a national uh, rollout, it said this is what is expected rather than each state or hospital gets to make their own policy, it may have made a difference. Exactly. Exactly. And I actually, I have a thought if now, now is a good time to, to go back to the, um, the question. I think one of the, the findings you were talking about earlier about why does the United States or North America have more burnout despite having more resources? I have a thought I would love to throw out there and get your opinion on it. Um, sure. Sure. Um, having, so I'm not, in your study, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that you guys surveyed about visitor policies. Um, but uh, we did general, not. So I'm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious because I think we know in the United States, for the most part, visitor policies were, have been profoundly impactful on our experience as healthcare providers during the pandemic. And I think also clearly the experience of patients and their families. And I think I, I'm just thinking out loud that in the United States, at least when we sort of shut down visitor policies altogether and in a country where our healthcare system and our medical decision making is made primarily with, in concert with, you know, families um, who are surrogates for their their patients who may not be able to speak for themselves. I think that in and of itself probably created a pretty big barrier to our ability to effectively communicate and come to these decisions. And so I think the strain placed based on that may be at least in part a contributor to the increased burnout that we have seen or that you report in your study. Um, and then also, I think there's just the issue of where does where's the baseline? Like, are are clinicians in the United States starting at a higher burnout um, than other countries, despite you know our our sort of luxury of having a lot of resources, and yet burnout is pretty prevalent. And I think part of that is just sort of the bureaucracy of our healthcare system and the structure of it, and how you know a lot of interface with the electronic medical record as opposed with patient care and things that are sort of just dissatisfiers at baseline in the United States. And then this exacerbates that. So those are just some two thoughts I had as I read your your article and and was really thinking about why why could that be? Why do we have the most resources and yet the greatest burnout during all of this? Sarah, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, no, I think those are excellent points brought up, and I would fully agree with Kelly wholeheartedly um, uh, based on our experience and many others' experiences that the family visitations and you know having to see patients die alone, you know, both for COVID and non-COVID patients 
having to convey news and having that disconnect and, you know, the, witnessing the suffering of the family, um, witnessing patients alone uh, is a huge part right now of uh, what's very distressing uh, to all of us. Um, at the time, uh, it was still relatively early in, in the pandemic where some of the visitation limitations were not as strict or, uh, you know, at our institution still fluctuating, not as clearly defined. Um, but I think it's certainly, uh, there are certainly some factors that I wish we would have explored more, um, including that. Um, again, I have to say, um, especially when comparing uh, the U.S. to other more lower resource environments, I don't think I fully have all the expertise and cultural background to speak for um, those other countries. Um, and agree with you, Dominic, that it's just such a complex topic. Um, but I definitely think it, yeah, it's it's a very interesting discussion. I think there's also a lot of things happening in politics and our societies. Um, and I think they're just, you know, differences culturally and personally and how we respond to stress um, that might be different. Um, but yeah, it's obviously, a, yeah, I think it's very, very multifactorial. Uh, I agree with Kelly. There are things that uh, there are a lot of components that we didn't account for um, in this study. So I want to turn to um, this question of like motivation versus reward. And uh, some people have said, you know, one of the common reasons for burnout is, you know, either losing the resources that you need, which is definitely a big factor in what happened in the last year with COVID-19, and then also losing sight of the, um, you know, the, the the goal of the care, the fact that we need to provide care that is uh, patient-centered, and whether or not that also factored in, and sometimes, you know, physicians getting so wrapped up with, you know, trying to get this patient, uh, you know, uh, dealing with settings and getting numbers better rather than focusing on the patient and uh, realizing that they need to, you know, when the time comes to allow the transition to comfort mm -hmm. care. Were you able to explore that in any way? Um, or if, uh, if not, uh, what yeah. were your thoughts on that? Yeah, unfortunately not in our survey, but I would say that is probably also another component that really colored the burnout. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in Europe and I trained in Germany in medical school. And for me, it was very striking how conversations are so different. And this was pre the pandemic. Uh, I came to do my residency uh, in Boston and then uh, since 2015, I'm faculty uh, in Seattle at the University of Washington. And my experience in the U.S. has just been so different. Um, and it might be a combination of, uh, you know, what Kelly brought up um, in terms of the family visitations. I think as you make these decisions, very much involving the family, uh, I find that the process is sometimes very much drawn out um, uh, by the families not being able to visit. And I think in a place as the U.S. where we have a lot of resources and we can continue and we're not as stretched, um, we have that luxury of affording that time. Uh, but something that's in my experience in speaking to both COVID and non-COVID ICU patients is that very frequently the families have a harder time making a decision um, because they can't come and see their family members. And, you know, sometimes FaceTiming helps, but it's, it's definitely different. They can't be there. They don't see the situation. And they obviously also can't come and say goodbye as easily. And so I find that the decision-making um, and moving to comfort care in a very a devastating situation or a situation where the outcome is not thought to be promising is much more drawn out compared to prior to the pandemic. Um, in speaking to other colleagues from elsewhere. So there's actually a follow-up project that we did with the Brazilian Critical Care Society who saw our survey very late, uh, but it's actually using it as, as a tool to assess needs and it's working with the Brazilian Health Ministry. And there's actually a follow-up study to come, but um, the data in Brazil actually looked pretty different. And um, 
Uh, we're still analyzing it, but it's actually very interesting um, in terms of the emotional distress and the factors that were important. It was different. And when speaking to them just about their experiences and how they are responding in terms of family conversations, they were saying, we're making these decisions much earlier. We're giving the families less time. We're telling families to have to pull the patient off the vent or, you know, a, a decision where usually we would give two or three days to give a family time to cope. We're making much quicker because we can't afford to wait. And I think um, that might play a part, um, uh, you know, and, and the whole maybe burnout, the stress. I mean, something I'm hearing here from a lot of our nurses and my residents as I'm, you know, working with the families through all of this and, you know, the families just need time and can't make a decision and don't know what's actually happening uh, is that I hear a need. Uh, and, you know, as I'm trying to address burnout on my team or distress uh, amongst the nurses, I think a lot of them are hoping that the family would make a decision. They're seeing the suffering and they're kind of getting frustrated by the families not fully understanding the concept. Um, and again, being given that option of having time more so than in other countries. So I think that might actually yeah. really factor in into some of these results. Okay, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that because there are obvious advantages to having a uh, patient, uh, having a focus on patient autonomy and allowing families to make decisions. But um, sometimes mm -hmm. our greatest strengths are our greatest weaknesses. And um, uh, how might that factor into uh, what we're seeing unfolding in the, in the ICUs? Yeah, I, I really agree. And everything that Sarah just talked about really rings true to me. It's, and then the contrast with Brazil is very interesting. Um, in general, I it's hard for me to separate this out from the visitor policies. I think that, yes, it is generally patient autonomy is so important and valued here. And that it's almost like we're operating, like we're treating patients with, you know, our hands tied behind our back when the families aren't present and able to engage in face-to-face -face conversation about such important issues. And I also have a sense that uh, in general, you know, in the U.S., like pre-COVID, it makes sense to me what Sarah just described, how we have sort of prolonged, um, like end of life, the end of life or the dying process in the United States is probably more prolonged compared to other countries because of this. And now in the setting of COVID, when you cut out visitors, so that you can't have that, those conversations, it's probably prolonged even further. Um, and I, I would guess that that really is a big contributor to the moral distress that clinicians are experiencing, both on the sick, for the, the benefit of the patient, seeing them dying alone without their family, and also seeing them suffer for longer than they might otherwise because the family isn't there to see in person how sick their loved one is or, or how, mm -hmm. how much they may be suffering um, you know, with care that is, or with treatment that is unlikely to uh, lead to a meaningful recovery. But how would you solve the situation? Because, I mean, the, the, so the reason that the fa um, that the policy was taken that families would not be allowed if the patient had COVID was because, one, the family member may have COVID themselves and may risk exposure to uh, the staff as they're coming in, or they may not have COVID and they may risk getting COVID, which would cause further cases of COVID. Um, so it was a, it's a very difficult decision at, initially to make. How would you go about addressing that so that you could have families present to help with the decision-making process, but also make sure that there isn't an infection control issue? Um, Kelly? Right. It, right. It's really tough, but I think, um, I think rethinking the risk of infection 
in the setting of having families come is important. Um, you know, especially early on, and even now we're sort of in a data-free zone as far as what really is the risk of having visitors come in. But I feel like if we had better access to rapid testing and more available PPE so that we weren't operating in this constant shortage slash reuse environment such that we could give, you know, appropriate PPE and have families come protected with someone watching them don and off so that we can help ensure safety and then recognizing that there is a small risk involved, but is that risk larger than the risk to the patient, family, and clinicians of not having them there? You know, I don't think we know the answer to that, but given everything that I'm seeing clinically and from my own research, I'm starting to think that the risk of infection transmission is lower than the the risks in so many other ways to to all the other to all parties involved by not allowing them into the hospital. So more PPE, more testing, which is kind of what we needed initially. Um, Sarah, exactly. what are your uh, response? Uh, Sarah, what is your response to Kelly's uh, comment? Yeah, um, I think those are good thoughts, and I think um, I fully, I mean, I fully agree and see a lot of the tough decisions our hospital administrators have to make for the safety of people. This is, again, a very complex issue, but uh, I think another aspect is seeing how the society prioritizes certain aspects of the pandemic. Um, I think the issue of infectious transmission is a real one. And, you know, there are um, reports of providers getting infected. I, you know, I think another issue that we're facing in reality is kind of being fair to each family. You know, there's always some circumstances that are really extreme we can make some exception, but it gets very tricky because each family has some extreme circumstance. And I think there's a lot of distress among providers also seeing how there's sometimes, you know, families that are louder or providers that are louder and advocating a little bit more forceful. Um, you know, I, I think the issue of justice uh, and all these visitation policies become a thing. I think it's a really, really important topic, the visitation policy and the limited visitation and the strains that come with it and both emotional strain on family and providers, but also impacts on decision-making and critical care resource utilization are something that really need to be addressed and brought to attention and be become an issue of debate. Um, but I think, uh, as I hinted, I think there is some complex society, uh, or, you know, outside of the hospital things that could be better. Um, you know, I was just speaking to colleagues in Germany whose kids, small kids, go to school and education is the most prioritized thing. Um, you know, I find it stunning that I can go get my nails done. <laughs> a colleague recently as a stress relieved offered me to go do that. Um, but you know that you can do a lot of things that are non-essential. Um, and there's a big disconnect to me to um, some of the things. And, you know, understanding their economic impacts to this. There are small businesses that are struggling. But I think I am still stunned that um, there are many things that are prioritized um, differently compared to healthcare and education, uh, especially in this country. Um, and this is, again, from speaking to people in Europe or other countries for, that are handling it differently. Um, there was a very good article in the New England Journal of Medicine this summer that was kind of emphasizing or where, an editorial, I think, where the authors were really advocating that small kids' education should be very prioritized and should be an essential issue. And this was over the summer when we we're gradually reopening a lot of things. Um, and small kids were learning, being socialized, you know, are being held at home. And so I think there needs to be a lot of kind of discussion in our society of what things we do prioritize. Um, in addition to just our patients in the hospital, it should be their families that we prioritize a little more. Um, again, I'm stunned about some other things that I can easily do if I wanted to in my free time that I personally don't do, but a lot of other people do. And I think 
uh, for a short amount of time while people are getting vaccinated. We're all stricter about that and would prioritize healthcare and education. Uh, we would be in a better place. I mean, I think it gets to the issue of, you know, what kind of society do we believe we are and um, uh, and the decisions that we make. Um, I do want to bring up one last question because it gets to, you know, we have this critical care shortage. Um, and the question is going to be, you know, what do we do in the future? You know, do we uh, take appropriate steps to make sure that planning is in place so that if this were to happen again, that we would be prepared versus the obvious concern, you know, how do we satisfy today's needs? Um, it, it's very likely in two or three years' time that people say, you know what, we don't have a COVID pandemic anymore and I need to deal with today's problems and not worry about, you know, next year's problems. And it's always this balance between, you know, how much do you prepare for the future versus dealing with the challenges of today? So I'll turn to Kelly first. You know, how do we make sure that this doesn't happen again? And, and you mentioned the issues of like PPE and testing. But uh, how do we make sure that we don't have a disaster uh, that was 2020? Yeah, it's a tough question. I think, I mean, a, a short answer back to the uh, kind of where we started the conversation about PPE shortages and how that's really driven a lot of the issues we've seen. I think so our, you know, strategic national stockpile, I think using this as an opportunity to uh, get that up to standard where it needs to be if, if we are a, facing a similar situation in the future. I think we also, it should make us rethink our global supply chain and our reliance on, you know, one country to make one product that can be so vital. Uh, and during times of non-emergency, that situation is fine, but we, it left us completely unprepared and vulnerable during times of, of emergency and in this global pandemic. So I think rethinking that supply chain, having a little more um, variability in where we derive essential resources and uh, like I said, shoring up our strategic national stockpile for future um, for future events. And then um, I think if we could at all avoid the cycle of, you know, there's an emergency and it gets our attention and we people care about it for a year and then things calm down and we forget about it for the next however many years. I think trying to avoid that cycle as much as possible, particularly when it comes to public health, so trying to increase, you know, funding for state and local public health systems that have really just been relied upon heavily for the response to the pandemic and yet don't have the funds to support what is being asked of them. I think getting the CDC back to a place where um, we can trust and rely on its recommendations and kind of, uh, I think that's going to be an important piece of this. But I think funding and emphasis on public health should not be forgotten in a year. I think this really revealed how fragile our public health system was, despite being, you know, at the beginning of this, the United States was considered a, a, a place that was most well prepared for a pandemic. And yet look at where we are. Um, so I think, you know, all of these issues, but really focusing on public health and shoring up our local uh, public health resources and emphasis is going to be important and not letting that fade away in between um, crises is, is key. I agree. Um, Sarah? Um, yeah, um, it's tough. And um, there are, uh, I think, you know, as challenging as situations can be, I think we have all learned our lessons from the pandemic and we are all learning and we've all grown as intensivists, as physicians. And, um, you know, I, I think one thing we have learned is, or 
I'm not sure we have learned it. Or I think we're trying to balance and navigate as this balance of being prepared for the future, but also living in the present. Uh, I think an initial issue of the pandemic is that there were a lot of rescheduling and organizing and planning, and a lot of time went into that when it wasn't always necessary. And I think it's a, you know, we're still kind of working with these challenges of planning ahead and, you know, planning schedules for next year and things. But at the same time, being in the present and focusing on and, you know, and reacting to the pandemic and uh, this component of the unpredictable, um, or, you know, um, some uh, uncertainties, I think is definitely playing a part in the distress. Uh, I think certainly, um, I think for many of those involved and uh, responding and reorganizing and, and, you know, in a very quick time frame, coming up with solution. Uh, I think it's important to kind of keep these things in place. And I think, um, again, more research is needed on uh, long-term effects on providers, on things that could have been better. And I think we just need to very critically in very real time, um, you know, uh, investigate the challenges and identify them and identify the issues that are going wrong. And it doesn't have to be for a future pandemic. I think it can be just, I think we can... Um, if we continue to evaluate ourselves critically and always push ourselves to be better, I think we can draw lessons from this experience that will make um, uh, our healthcare and, uh, you know, us as physicians stronger and better for the future. Definitely. I do want to be mindful of your time. So um, as we draw to this podcast, I want to give you each an opportunity to um, just make any concluding comments or anything that we that you prepared for the podcast that you didn't get the opportunity to discuss or mention to the audience. Um, I'll start off with Kelly, and then I'll give Sarah the final word. Um, Kelly? Um, let's see. I think I would just say that... Um, I really enjoyed about the study the sort of the broad nature, the international component and perspective, um, and the fact that um, the Sarah and her co-authors sampled non-physicians as well. So I think the perspectives of nurses and RTs in particular are sort of unsung heroes throughout all of this. Um, so it's nice to at least be uh, inclusive in uh, asking such important questions. And then I think what this study really made me want to, it made me want to build on, um, actually, I think an important research question is trying to understand how this strain also impacts non-COVID patients hospitalized during this time. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that's sort of an under, you know, we, we, I, I would hypothesize that there's a major impact for those patients, but we don't yet know how to describe their experience and their outcomes. Um, since so much focus has been on COVID itself, appropriately so. So I think that's just a really interesting kind of next step and research question that I would be interested in learning more about as well. And then finally, I think this really, as a survey, you know, it's it's really informative and it gives us a lot of kind of the what's going on. And, and now I think it, again, makes me want to understand the why, sort of the more in-depth understanding of, of the stories and voices behind these answers. And I think um, building on it with uh, with maybe more qualitative methods um, to understand uh, exact experiences and how that impacted clinicians is going to be really important as well. Thank you very much, Kelly. Uh, Sarah, you have the last word. Thank you very much. And uh, firstly, thank you to Kelly. Um, it's a very, you know, well-written, on-point editorial that, you know, definitely, you know, 
I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm very honored that you <laughs> included our paper in it. And I think, you know, I think it's, um, yeah. And then also thank you to my collaborators on this project, but also all the physicians and nurses and RTs and APPs in ICUs that are working on COVID patients at very limited time um, that took the time to contribute to this. And I think, uh, you know, while sending out the survey, um, there was actually a lot of feedback and communications with providers from everywhere that, you know, help my own distress and, you know, made, you know, it's fascinating again to see how we are all in this together and how across the world, despite cultural differences and differences in resource availability, there are a lot of things that we face together. Um, I fully agree with uh, Kelly, both on the importance of looking at the effect on other COVID patients, um, as well as uh, really addressing uh, the family visitation issues and the effects of that and exploring ways to balance safety and, um, you know, and family communications and family well-being as well. Um, and I think, uh, you know, in thinking of uh, action steps or, you know, hopefully something good that can come out of this study, it would be definitely, I think, uh, you know, uh, the study is, I think, one of many papers uh, across Italy, China, and, and other journals that really highlight the distress on providers um, and, um you know, I think it's if you walk around hospitals and ask people, uh, I think it's actually stronger than when we started the study. Uh, I think in April there were still a lot of folks that were motivated and, uh, you know, and it was a new thing. I think the source of anxiety and distress was more kind of this new, unpredictable. I think now, uh, being many, many months into this, uh, I bet if we did the study again, the distress rates would be even higher. Um, and I think uh, hopefully this study will contribute to uh, raising awareness around that and, um, you know, and hopefully some interventions and, uh, you know, uh, awareness of that topic um, will result. I agree. A very important topic. And I think both of you did a really outstanding job highlighting its importance. A very big thank you to Drs. Walston and Franis for a great conversation, uh, really outstanding uh, pieces of work in chest, and I definitely encourage you to read it. A very big thank you to our chest community for joining us. Uh, I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is the Chess Podcast.